This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. This is part three of the 2020-2021 mini-stories episodes, where I interview the staff about their favorite little stories from the built world that don't quite fill out an entire episode for whatever reason, but are great 99PI stories nonetheless. We have music games with Sean Real, lost statues with Joe Rosenberg, and overactive heaters with Delaney Hall. Stay with us. Hey, Dee, what do you have for us today? Uh, So today I want to talk with you about old radiators. And have you ever lived with an old radiator? I have. Where we met, like, I don't know, 15 years ago in in Chicago when we worked together at the station there. I lived in at least one apartment that had a radiator, which was, uh, yeah, is a confounding device. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are notorious for being loud, you know, like clanking a lot. And also just for being too hot. Yeah, blisteringly hot. (laughs) Right, right. So I don't know if you've ever wondered why that is. Um, But I recently recently learned that there is a reason for it. And it's actually related not to this current pandemic we're all living through, but to the flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919. Well, I've heard a little bit about this, but I don't know the full story. So I'm excited that you're bringing this to us. Yeah. Yeah. So I first of all, I learned about this history in an article in Bloomberg City Lab. It was reported by Patrick Sisson. And it was kind of through that article that I found Dan Hollihan. So he grew up in the heating industry. His dad worked for this plumbing and heating wholesaler in Manhattan. And now his family runs a website called heatinghelp.com. He wrote a book called The Lost Art of Steam Heat. I mean, basically, (laughs) he's just really into heating, specifically steam heating. <laughs> it throws such a lovely radiant glow on you. It's like being on the beach. And it's it's just a wonderful way uh, to heat. And the dogs are always sleeping in front of it. And the cat will pop up on top of it. And people will dry their hats and gloves on top of it. It's just a feels like home. So he can go on and on waxing poetically about steam heat for a long time. <laughs> I love it. And he got he got really interested in the history of steam heating in the U.S. And he said that as he started doing this research, he was looking at these primary source documents, like these old technical manuals. And he kept coming across references to the fresh air movement. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board with the fresh air movement. I'd follow Terry Gross into the gates of hell. <laughs> I think we're all part of the fresh air movement. Yes, <laughs> uh, But... <laughs> This is a different fresh air movement. Well, that's too bad. We'll have to work on the other one. (laughs) This one, not with Terry Gross, was a health crusade. It started right after the Civil War. And proponents of the fresh air movement basically thought that stale, uncirculated air was bad, like very bad for your health. Mm -hmm. They called it vitiated air, which means spoiled air. And Hmm. they thought that spoiled air was everywhere, like we were just steeping in it. People didn't bathe regularly. There was uh, unventilated stoves that would be in the place. So they just said it's it's dirty air and it's coming off your body and it's coming out of your out of your mouth and you're smoking and, and all these things are going on in a in a sealed apartment that doesn't have good circulation to begin with. So that that caught everybody's attention because it was indeed killing people. And so this was pre-germ theory, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Do they have a concept of the mechanism of why unventilated air might be making them sick? 
they didn't really at this point. They were just sort of starting to realize that something was up. And one of the main proponents of the fresh air movement was a guy named Lewis Leeds. He had been an inspector for the Union Army field hospitals. And he got really interested in this idea of vitiated air. He was convinced that that something about it was making people ill. And he actually teamed up with Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Whoa. Cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they created this traveling roadshow. They would basically go across the country and give lectures with these magic lantern-type slides. You got, like, mom and dad sitting in the parlor. And in crawls the baby in a long gown and the, and the baby, the baby's bonnet. And the baby crawls into these vapors that are coming out of the man. And they're done in red. So you see, it comes out of his mouth and it goes to the floor. And, and the baby crawls into this cloud. And then the next slide, the baby just kind of topples over and dies. Wow. That's some extreme form of scared straight. <laughs> yeah. As you can imagine, it was, it was pretty effective. They really caught the attention of lots of people. And... I was really struck by when Dan was describing these lantern slides that they would show. It really actually reminded me of the coronavirus diagrams you'll see where there's like two people talking to each other and they're sort of (laughs) spewing red and blue virus droplets all over each other's face. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that scarred me that, that in the the nineties reports from like 2020, they would show the black lights uh, on hotel rooms of all the organic splatter all over hotel room. I'm scarred for life for that. (laughs) Yeah. So these were sort of like the 19th century version of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were part of what helped the fresh air movement really take hold. So it gets very popular. And it gets so popular that building designers actually started adapting their buildings to bring in more fresh air. The tenements suddenly, you know, as they come into their own, have to have air shafts and you have to have more windows and you can't have these hobbles. And, you know, like you see in the gangs of New York, that sort of thing. So things got better, but then, you know, it took a crisis like the Spanish flu to really kick it into high gear. What's going on is around this time in the 19-teens, there are these two things that are happening concurrently. And one is the flu pandemic, which, of course, was a devastating global pandemic that was killing hundreds of thousands of people. And then at the same time, steam heating is really getting going. So steam heating systems are being installed in buildings across the country. And health officials at the time were starting to push this idea that people needed to keep their windows open, even in the winter. And they needed to do that to increase ventilation and minimize flu spread. And if people were going to be keeping their windows open through the winter, they needed like some pretty oversized radiators. And they were saying that because of the fresh air movement, we have to start designing systems big enough that they can heat the building on the coldest day of the year with the wind blowing and the windows open. Okay, so this is why radiators, like even today, can be so overpowering because they need to be that hot for for the windows to be open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And many of those radiator systems were so sturdy and so well-built that they are still in use today. Yeah, (laughs) the one that was in my apartment was was certainly put in in the 1920s. (laughs) Yeah, and the, the kind of interesting thing is that once the pandemic was over, people began to wonder why we why do we have the windows open? You know, oh, that was because of the flu, but that's that's gone. You know, more than ten years. Close the window, so they close the window, and now they're stifling because it's so hot. 
Ask anybody that lives in a Manhattan apartment, you know, nowadays. And so all of those, you know, stifling people started <laughs> insisting that something be done about this. And what ended up happening is that basically a whole industry arose to retrofit those big overpowering radiators. So companies began to develop the radiator covers and other people would paint their radiators with this special paint. But if you use something called a, a bronzing paint, uh, specifically an aluminum bronzing paint, which has flakes of metal in it, that will, that will reduce the radiator's ability to radiate by 20%. So just by painting the radiator silver, with this special paint, you're downsizing it. And this is why radiators are all silver for the most part. Wow. I, I had no idea that was why they were silver. I, I mean, they, they, yeah. they're very often silver. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, they are. It, it, it also must be made worse by the fact that the building around it is becoming more thermally efficient. Like buildings, you know, trap more heat in than they used to. And that must make it even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to, you know, the 19-teens, buildings now are basically like hermetically sealed. <laughs> in some office buildings, you cannot open the windows. It's it's right. not designed that way. It's not an option. And so, you know, as you can imagine, that has become an issue with our current pandemic. You need a lot of air coming in. You need fresh air. So, and, and, Many of these high-end modern buildings can't do that. And the windows don't open. <laughs> so that's, you know, this is where we're faced right now is, okay, what do we do with that? I have been wondering, like, if this current pandemic would shift us back a little bit more towards open-air buildings because um, the need for fresh air and space seems as necessary as it was in the, in the 19-teens. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two forces kind of pulling in opposite directions. One is like that knowledge that we have now, like very vividly that buildings need to be ventilated. And then also like this continuing pressure to make them more energy efficient because of of climate change. So mm -hmm. it'll mm -hmm. be interesting to watch what happens. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me is, is we were doing a bunch of episodes in the beginning of the pandemic and the lockdown mm -hmm. um, is how many things that we're, we're trying today to, to slow this pandemic down, like, like masks and, and quarantine and, and open windows. Uh, they're so old. <laughs> they, they were the, these are the same techniques that were, they, they were, people were doing a hundred years ago. I know. I know. I know. It sort of feels like the vaccine, that is this you know, monumental achievement of modern mm -hmm. science. Yeah, especially these vaccines. Yeah. Yeah, these vaccines. But everything else we're working with is like a really old technology. <laughs> Just like stay away from each other, cover your faces, open the windows. That's what we've got. That was senior producer Delaney Hall. To read Patrick Sisson's full story of steam heating and its connection to the history of the 1918 flu pandemic, visit Bloomberg City Lab. And to learn more about Dan Hullahan, visit heatinghelp.com. All right, so I'm here with producer Joe Rosenberg. Hey, Joe. Hey, Roman. How's it going? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. So what is the mini that you have for us today? Um, well, so what I've got for you here is a kind of mini sequel, okay. because if you cast your memory back, uh, not actually to all that long ago, you will recall uh, 99PI produced a story about monuments to Lenin. Right, right. Julia Barton did that story for us at 
it's kind of about what happened to all those Lenin monuments in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. As our listeners probably know, and, and probably know even if they didn't hear that episode, after the Soviet Union collapsed, a great many of those statues of Lenin, busts of Lenin, and really all sorts of monuments to Lenin were toppled. They were torn down or pulverized or even like... Dramatically. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> tossed into the Black Sea um, and consigned to various other sad fates. Yeah. And I think what the story was uh, centered on and what was interesting to me is that there are some still standing in Russia that the ones that weren't destroyed that that were put in these kind of uh, Soviet nostalgia parks alongside statues of other former communist leaders. It was a way of dealing with this history um, without completely destroying it. Yeah, exactly. They kind of almost like bracketed it off. It, they they right. put this kind of metaframe <laughs> around it. And so like it was everyone was able to like look at it and you could just project what what you wanted onto it in this kind of <laughs> safer space or something. Right. That is the main thing that most people know about these old Lenin monuments, which is that most of them are gone or defunct mm-hmm. in one way or another. But I am here to tell you that there is one monument to Lenin that not only lives on, but I, I think it's safe to say it will not be toppled anytime soon. It, it is arguably, arguably the most secure Lenin in the world. <laughs> okay. So why is that? Why, why has this one survived and will probably survive amongst all the others that have been toppled? Well, to answer that, first of all, let me ask you, have you ever heard of something called a pole of inaccessibility? No, I, I haven't. It sounds a little ominous. What is the pole of inaccessibility? So a pole of inaccessibility, it's both ominous and not. It it is the geographical term that indicates the location on a given landmass that is further from the coastline than any other spot on that landmass. So every continent and every island has its own pole of inaccessibility, or POI. So for example, North America's POI is on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. It's Mm -hmm. uh, 1,030 miles from the nearest coastline. Asia has a POI in the desert of Western China. It's about 1,500 miles from the coast. But, you know, even something like the island of Great Britain has its own pole of inaccessibility. Uh, According to the British Ordnance Survey, it is near Church Flats Farm in the county of Derbyshire and is a mere 70 miles from the coast. (laughs) So it's it's not that inaccessible. (laughs) No, I think think you could knock that one out pretty easily if you ever wanted to. But anyway, the reason I bring this all up is because way back in 1958, a team of scientists from the Soviet Union became the first people to ever reach the southern pole of inaccessibility. And so this is the POI for Antarctica. Is it actually the South Pole or not? No. So the South Pole is closer to the coast because if you think about it, uh, like there's that like big chunk taken out of like yeah. one side of Antarctica. It's a little lopsided, right? It's got that chunk taken out of it. And so right. the South Pole is actually much closer okay. to that coastline than the Pole of Inaccessibility, which true to its name for these uh, Russian scientists was really hard to get to. It's like really inaccessible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like it was. So by definition, further inland than the geographic South Pole. Plus, okay. you know, it's Antarctica. So, you know, it was already also on the higher and colder part of the continent. And then the further you are from the shoreline, the colder it tends to get. So, you know, we made it to the South Pole in 1911, but when the Soviets finally got to the Southern Pole of inaccessibility, that took them another half century to reach. I mean, I guess it has not doesn't have a lot of symbolic virtue and it seems like a horrible place. So why would you bother? They weren't really in a rush to get there. And 
Apparently, they weren't in a rush to stay there either, because once <laughs> this team of Soviet scientists got there, they tried to set up this meteorological research station. But it was like insanely cold. The average temperature was something like negative 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Average? Oh, my God. Yeah. That's horrible. <laughs> so, right. So, like, just after, like, 12 days, they were like, screw this. And they left. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> Good call. Yeah, excellent call. But before they returned to civilization, they left behind a bust of Lenin. <laughs> of course. It's just the Soviet thing to do. And so here, let me show you a photo of what it looked like. Wow. Yep. There it is. There's Lenin, a bust of Lenin right on the top of, of a kind of look like a pedestal of some kind. What is that? So that is actually the chimney of the research station and which they dragged all the way there thinking probably that they'd use it for longer than 12 days. Um, but now it serves this function of making sure um, Lenin is as lofty and, and dignified as possible as he gazes out over the white expanse. I mean, despite the stark surroundings, I mean, this looked like just a classic Lenin bust, like generic Lenin bust. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. The furrowed brow, the jutting chin. It's almost like at the last second before they left, they just grabbed a spare Lenin off the shelf and just kind of like yeah. took it with them. <laughs> you know, so I confess, yeah, it's, it's not much to look at. But I kind of think of it as like the gargoyle on the top of a cathedral. Because like, you know, after they left, it was never intended to be seen by anyone. Right. Like the gargoyle has a, has a function, but the people on the ground can't see gargoyles. They're meant for the designer of the church and maybe for God. And, uh, and that's it. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of, of this Lenin, like, you know, pleasing to the materialist forces of Marxist Leninism, they, you know, they, <laughs> I, you know, it sounds like I'm joking, but like they even oriented it so that it would forever face towards Moscow. So are these pictures you're showing me from when it was erected or did people come afterward to, to check it out? Like, you know, how inaccessible is the Lenin at the pole of inaccessibility? He's pretty inaccessible. These photos are the originals. There was a brief spurt of visits by pole of inaccessibility standards in the 1960s. The Soviets went back super briefly in 64. Then in 65, an American research team dropped by climbed up the pedestal and swiveled the bust so that Lenin faced towards Washington, D.C. <laughs> At which point, learning of the American antics, the Soviets came back down one last time and swiveled him back towards Moscow. <laughs> I mean, this is an aspect of the Cold War that I can totally get behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if the whole Cold War was just like somehow like um, dueling pranks, <laughs> um, for the sake of like national pride, that would be a much better. <laughs> after that little back and forth, after that little duel, for many, many decades, there was nothing. Hmm. The Southern POI went kind of forgotten and unvisited, which means that all through the rest of the Cold War and perestroika and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, as all the other statues and busts of Lenin were being toppled, all over the world, this one lonely Lenin just sat there, untouched by the forces of history. So it wasn't toppled, you know, by people uh, marking the end of the regime, but did, you know, nature topple it eventually? Like, what is the fate of Lenin on the, on the POI? 
So this is where the story takes a turn. Because when people finally returned to the area in the mid-2000s, the official position of the POI um, had actually changed in the intervening years due to like updated calculations. Uh, so the new focus was on being the first to go to these new coordinates and nab that record. And checking up on Lenin to see if he was still kicking, just it just wasn't a priority. But nevertheless, there was at least one person who continued to believe that Lenin was still there at the old POI and could be found. There's no way I was ever going to let go of it. So, so one way or other, I was, you know, crawling to the pole of inaccessibility. I, I, was, I was always going there. So who is that? So that is Henry Cookson. And uh, today he runs an adventure travel outfit called Cookson Adventures. But back in 2006, he was not a professional adventurer. He was just kind of a random dude who, along with two other friends, uh, Rupert Longsden and Rory Sweet, just kind of got obsessed with finding this bust of Lenin um, at the Southern Pole of Inaccessibility. Oh, yeah. N- none, of us, none of us had a clue. And my teammate, we didn't know where the north, south, we didn't know where the penguins were north or south. We didn't know the polar bears. We, we knew nothing about these areas. <laughs> well, he sounds like the right man for the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I actually do firmly believe in beginner's luck. Like, like you don't know you're not supposed to do certain things, so you just do them, and then you kind of get away with them. Like, yeah. Everyone else they consulted with basically said, why even bother at this point? Because even if you get there, you're not going to find anything. They just looked at us and said, look, Lenin is going to be buried under the snow. You know, huge structures have been buried o- over the decades. Um, so a small little statue that, that no one's been to in, in 40, 50 years, you know, they said, without doubt, it's not going to be there. Oh, wow. So, so they could be right on it, right there. But Lenin could be so buried, they would not actually find it. Correct. So they hired a fourth person, a veteran Antarctic explorer named Paul Landry, to help supervise their team. But there was still this complication because um, even though great parts of the Antarctic ice sheet are, you know, calving away due to um, climate change, the middle of the continent, the snow is still just accumulating and then compacts down into ice. And at the pole of inaccessibility, one of the things that makes it a challenging place to go is that the ice there is, I believe, 13,000 feet deep. Uh, But nevertheless, despite the odds, um, they decided (laughs) to go look for Lenin. And so they went down to Antarctica. They used kites to help pull themselves and their supplies across the ice. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I I will skip over the details of the journey itself. You know, insert your standard extremes of Antarctica statistics here. (laughs) But I will just say that to reach the suspected location of the Russian station took them 46 days. Holy moly. Oh my God. The whole way there was just pure horizon. Hmm. You know, an almost entirely flat, featureless landscape. And all through this monotonous journey, they had to contend with the possibility that when they got to the coordinates, Lenin would be so buried in the snow that all they would see was more flat, featureless landscape. We had only seen white, you know, white snow and sky and our own selves and tent for, for the last uh, 50 odd days. And we reach the, 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 the said coordinates. Um, we are absolutely exhausted. We're freezing cold um, and we can see nothing. So, you know, we agree to keep on pushing. And after a few minutes, I, I see this, this tiny little black dot on the horizon. 
a few more minutes and this little black dot starts to, to, to grow into something more substantial. And then suddenly you can make out, you know, the outline of, of a man. And there was this silence. We, 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 we put down our kites and we just walked. We walked in silence up to this, up to this uh, you know, statue. And, and you know, there, was, there was Lenin. Wow, I cannot believe they found him. They did. He wasn't buried under the snow, um, at least not yet. And uh, I have to say, I just, I just love this part of the story because here's a photo of what Lenin looked like when, when they did find him. Wow. So it's really just the top of the chimney that's left and the bust. I mean, like they, he's, he's just barely hanging on. <laughs> it's been reduced to a kind of, a, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a plinth? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to give you a sense of scale, the snow had been accumulating, obviously, in the previous 48 years, but it hadn't quite made it all the way up. The original chimney of the Russian station was maybe, let's say, 30 feet high. And now only about six to seven feet were left. Making the Lenin at that pole of inaccessibility a tad more accessible. <laughs> you can reach up and touch it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly what they did. The really bizarre thing was, um, you know, we was expecting this to be a bronze or something, you know, a stew. And it was made of some sort of weird yellow plastic compound, which was very light. You could, you could pick him up. Um, did you pick him you, up? You could, we did pick him up. Yeah. <laughs> Did they did they make him face towards London or something? <laughs> yeah, so of course I asked Henry precisely that, and he said no. They they left him facing towards <laughs> Moscow, but not before goofing around just a bit. He might have been dressed up a little bit, um, you know, nothing nothing too reverent. You know, we 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 put it, we put a sort of hat on him and some goggles and 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 some took some pictures of us all, sort of you know, group huddle around him and and everything else. Um, but you know, I, I think he's 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 left with his his pride intact. I'm glad they left his pride intact, but it sounds like he's not going to last for that much longer because if the ice has accumulated around you know twenty feet in the fifty years, and there's only about six feet left, it seems like Lennon will be gone another decade or so. Could you remind me when his expedition was? Yeah. So Henry's expedition was um, December of 2006 is when they started. They found Lenin um, in January of 2007. So it's already like, you know, 13, 14 years. And, and so do people know if Lenin is still there? Is it almost up for Lenin? So of course that's the big question, right? Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, the Russian station has been visited at least two more times since then. And of course, each set of visitors took the obligatory photo posing next to Lenin. So here's a photo of a Norwegian team that got there just one year later in 2008. Oh, so yeah, he's already lost a foot, at least, you know, maybe, maybe two or three feet. The bottom of the, or the top of the plinth, right where the bus starts is just about chest height on most of these guys. I'd say it shaved off. Let's go with a foot. I think a foot, foot and a half. Okay. But um, even more recent data, much more recent data, is from this photo taken by a solo Australian adventurer who went, basically he went yesterday. This photo was taken in December of 2019. <laughs> and this one only looks like, a, like maybe two foot off the ground. He's sitting in this photo, but if he right. stood up, he would be taller than Above that. it. Yeah. Yeah, much taller. Yeah, yeah. I will say, however, that I do, I do think that this like kind of drab cookie cutter Lenin with its standard issue defiant expression is the perfect statue for this situation. Like, you know, cause like 
he never looks worried. Like even as the ice encroaches, he he seems to just be saying like, you know, bring it on. Yeah, he's definitely he's facing his fate with a sort of admirable stoicism. Yeah, <laughs> but like, but his fate is coming no matter what. I mean, like, if I were to guess, or like it, it did about another uh, foot in a or two feet in a year. I mean, you're talking five years max before he's like gone for good. Is there any notion that you know you should save him? I mean, it's just a plasticine <laughs> bust of Lenin. I mean, could they just like take him, <laughs> or what do you think will happen? Well. For starters, it would be a treaty violation um, to take him. To yeah, take him. That's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, Antarctica is under the joint jurisdiction um, of the signatories of the Antarctic Treaty, and in 2012, the signatories approved a list of historic sites and monuments to be preserved. And there's a lot, actually. There were like 86 monuments on the list. 86 monuments on Antarctica. Let me just tell you, there's a surprising number of plaques in Antarctica. <laughs> plaques which no one reads. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, um, you know, I think this time will, 99PI can um, forgive our listeners if they haven't, if they haven't read the, the, <laughs> the, the Antarctica plaques. But <laughs> coming in at number four was the bust of Lenin at the Southern Pole of Inaccessibility. Oh, so this is one of the historic monuments that, that has to be preserved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if it's number four on the list, um, it's funny, you can like see them. It's like this one's like this one is listed by Denmark and this one is listed by the U.S. And like this is the, mm-hmm. I think this is mm-hmm. either the first or second like one listed by Russia. It's like, you know, the ba- the bust of Lenin stays. So if you tried to move it, Putin would have you killed. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I personally think there's an even more important reason not to remove it, which is. Well, actually, let me ask you, from an artistic or even philosophical perspective, would you, Roman, want to see it saved and returned to civilization or left to the elements? Oh, left to the elements. No, no question. It, it should be buried. That's like part of the art project. Is it being buried as far as I'm concerned? Yeah, and I have to totally agree with this. The whole thing that makes gives it poetic appeal is that he is at least most of the time going unseen by anyone. He almost would like kind of reach his platonic ideal (laughs) by being rendered completely inaccessible and completely unseeable. And, you know, another person who feels this way is Henry Cookson. He said he considered taking it for a moment. It was, it was a very, a very fleeting thought (laughs) of putting him in our park and bringing him home. So yes, yes, there's a huge temptation to take it. Um, But no, I think, I think he should remain where he was put. I think if you could get there, and and his sort of the, the snow sort of halfway up his his face or something that would be cool. Like only his bald head is left sticking out before that too is consumed by the snow. Yeah, his his final you know that final gasp and then and then he's 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 disappeared into a silent icy grave. You know that <laughs> that that would be that would be poetic. Well, thank you, Joe. This is a really an amazing story. I love it. Thank you so much, Roman. This one was a pleasure. I'll play some music games with Sean Rial. We're going to compose a song together after this. All right, so I'm here with our composer, Sean Rial, who has a mini story for us. And you always have a music-related mini story for us every year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the case this year, too? Yep, it is. Yeah, very much so. I love <laughs> talking about music. <laughs> so uh, what do you have? So today we're going to talk about music games and um, specifically like music composing games, which is um, 
a term, an umbrella term I kind of came up with. I couldn't really find something that really <laughs> to really like put all these things together, but I, okay. I swear it feels related. So, okay. So, you know, so these are music games, but not like rhythm games, which I think is what a lot of people think of if you hear the term music game like yeah. rock band or bop it or you know the clapping games that you play on the playground right 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 did, did you ever play those games roman rock band for sure like i have a rock band set in my house i still play nice. i love rock band <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun what about yeah. the clapping games I don't know if I know any clapping games off the top of my head. I know them mainly from there was this amazing sound recordist and sort of audio anthropologist named Tony Schwartz. He was also an ad man in the in the 60s. And he recorded uh, lots of kids games like he was a, a New Yorker and, and, and he basically was agoraphobic and he basically stuck to his block. Um, but he recorded all these clapping and kids games that were amazing. And there's a Kitchen Sisters piece about about Tony Schwartz, which is oh, like stunning and one of my favorite pieces of, of radio. And uh, and so I have some different record albums of Tony Schwartz recording uh, clapping kids games and rhyming games and stuff like that. And I think oh that stuff God, is really amazing. Cool. Yeah. But I've never <laughs> done that myself, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was never really like a, a clapping game kid at all, all either but i also it's also because i just don't really like rhythm games like you you would think that maybe that wouldn't be the case since i'm a musician but yeah and a drummer but, most specifically yes but like i i just don't you know and i think this is why music composing games really appeal to me is because so what's different about a music composing game is that there are like rules around it, you know, keep it sounding like music or, you know, or like whatever the game determines is music. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea behind them is that you get something different every single time you play. Okay. You know, and there are lots of different examples of how people construct ways of like basically generating songs and generating like different kinds of like song experiences from a set of rules. Cool. And some of these examples are a little less maybe historically significant than others but this is my personal museum we're about to step into this is my <laughs> these are my favorites okay well let's hear them. what's the first one like so there are like a few games i kind of feel like they're in the same vein like kind of through the 1600s to the 1800s and some of them are done with dice a composer might like lay out like a certain number of notes or maybe write like a few different like melody variations and then they kind of like write them on sheets of paper, maybe, or like assign, you know, and assign numbers to them. And then you roll some dice and then you like notate based on what numbers you roll. And so basically you're making a song through chance. Like, you know, right. like you may, you may have even like, like written sections of music, but how one goes into the other and how the song starts ends is like, is all based on just like the, the chance of the dice. Right. And you know, it's the kind of thing that you could use maybe as like a writing prompt to like to, you know, to be like, totally. oh, I'm I'm totally stuck right now. Well, I'll just like, well, I like these notes. I guess maybe I'll just like see if I can like just like <laughs> leave it up to God. And I really like that because it sounds like a good way to maybe just like get yourself out of your own way when right. you're like, you know, when you're working on something. And I, you know, as someone who has like deadlines for music, like I... <laughs> I've never tried doing that, but I'm like, I'm very interested in like seeing how that could play out. It seems that the success of this game is contingent upon the little melodies that you assign have to be good in and of themselves and combine well in a random fashion, which is in and of itself 
its own difficult task. <laughs> yeah, like you really have to be like a composer already to play a game like this. Exactly. Like, you know, it's like you have to have parameters already set. Yeah. You know, that also like is dependent on like rules you learn based on what you consider to be music. Right. Okay, so next stop on in the museum of, <laughs> uh, of my favorite music games, we've got a little program, computer program, called microsoft songsmith have you ever heard of microsoft songsmith i have not i mean it sounds vaguely familiar but i've never used it no i'm gonna let microsoft songsmith have the first word here this is a little songsmith commercial where they explain how it works okay you're writing music when did you learn how to write music you sing into a microphone while the drummer plays along and then when songsmith makes the music, you're on your way to a song. Now songsmith comes up with the music that matches your voice. You sing into a microphone while the drummer plays along. And then when songsmith makes the music, you're on your way to a song. You can choose the style, you can set the mood, and the chords will match what you sing. So basically, like, you can sing, like, you know, anything that's vaguely melodic into <laughs> Songsmith, and it will generate music around that. Wow, that's something else. <laughs> and this is from, like, the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. And, like, like all the promotional material I find about Songsmith is, like, it's a great, like, you know, like, sketch tool for musicians. And it's, like, you know, it's for, like, like, there's, like, it feels like they're trying to market to, like, serious songwriters. and. I mean, you know, to be fair, I think that's like entirely valid. Like, I think if someone wanted to use it that way, they totally could, Mm -hmm. you know, because generally people do write music within a certain set of rules and parameters. Like as much as we want to think that we all do like things that are completely unique and like and stuff, it's like (laughs) there's a certain amount of just like, you know, like we're within a scale. We're within like, you know, like a certain Western tradition. That does make sense. Yeah. But there is something about Songsmith where, like, the sound of the instruments and everything is so, so silly that it's really, like, provided a lot of great opportunities for wonderful joke songs. And right. my favorite thing that someone's ever done with Songsmith, and actually there are a lot of these on, on YouTube, you can find videos of people who have taken isolated vocal tracks from hit songs and put them into Songsmith. So I'm oh gonna, my god, okay. <laughs> so I'm going to play you one of those right now. I hurt myself today To see the fast different take on that song <laughs> very different take oh my goodness <laughs> that's hilarious what a novel use of that technology that's a really fun thing to do yeah i think it's genius it really like <laughs> it really feeds my soul these like these songsmith covers 
I think that like music is the language of the soul, but I think that humor is also like a huge part of the language of the soul. And so I think, you know, I, I consider this to be valid art personally. Oh, totally. (laughs) I I do too. You know, like it's just a different form. I mean, it has its limitations, but it's, it's lovely and brings joy and makes you think about the original song and the art of that song. Even designing the algorithm that creates the song is an art form. And uh, that's so cool. So the next stop on the tour, this also kind of gets into some territory that it's going to, it kind of feels less like a game, but it feels really related to Songsmith and to this whole idea of having a set of rules and, you know, and generating songs for entertainment out of it. Okay. And it's also like another one of my favorite things ever. Um, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read a bit of this How Stuff Works article, like pretty much word for word real quick. So researchers from the University of Toronto trained a recurrent neural network, a type of complex artificial intelligence, to write a song inspired by an image of a Christmas tree. They taught the AI to compose tunes by feeding it a hundred hours of online music. They also gave the program thousands of images with captions so that it could link specific words to visual patterns. Then, create the lyrics and music when provided a picture. Sanja Fiddler, one of the the folks who worked on it, says, Instead of buying a karaoke machine with a certain track on it, you can create your own karaoke at home by throwing in some interesting photos and inviting the machine to generate music for you. I think it has endless possibilities, end quote. (laughs) Now... Now I'm going to play you some of the song that this artificial intelligence wrote. Okay, so here's the fo- the photo that they fed into into the computer. It's a f- photograph of a Christmas tree. It's lit. It has presents around it. It's the bottom half of a Christmas tree, um, very classically done with red and green and gold uh, mm-hmm. ornaments. Um, very, very fancy. And here's the song. It's a little ominous. That is amazing, like eerie and cool and odd. It reminds me of like, you know, kind of like a kid might write before they have like internalized all of these like ideas of like what is good and bad songwriting Mm -hmm. or -hmm. something like that, which is which is ironic because like this is coming from like an AI that has been fed so much conventional music. It just makes me think like, you know, like I want this AI to be 
to stay exactly as it is forever. <laughs> like, you know, whatever, whatever, like, you know, whatever iPhone app is going to like come from this kind of technology. Like, I feel like it's going to be less interesting than if you just take the code as it is and slap it in our hands right now. No. Let's start giving it pictures. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Okay. So what's your, what's your final one? Okay. So the final thing I thought we'd, uh, we'd play a little game of our own. Oh, cool. That's exciting. Okay. Yeah. So I made a music game for us to play that I composed music for. So basically this is like a this is like a 99 PI song music game. And um, <laughs> Okay, how does it work? So I've composed six rhythm parts and six le- like sort of lead instrument piano parts. Mm-hmm. And we're going to roll dice to determine what order they are played in. Oh, and, um, so good. Okay. Okay. Do I need two six-sided dice? or, or Two six-sided or, dice, yeah. Two six-sided dice. Okay, hold on. All right. So first, take one of the dice and roll for the tempo. Three. Okay, so three is 80, which is, in my opinion, the best tempo for this song. So good, <laughs> good. work, Roman. You're, all, you're already <laughs> great at this game. <laughs> With your two dice, designate one die for rhythm and one for lead. So um, if you have to roll them in separate places or something, you know, okay. just well, make they're, sure. they're very different dice. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. One for rhythm. Since I did the last one was the tempo one. I'll do the tempo one is rhythm and the other one for lead. Okay. Okay. The, the tempo one is four and the leader is a one. Okay. Four and one. <laughs> We're off to a very dramatic start. <laughs> okay, and so now we're going to do that seven more times. Okay, same order. Five and three. Five and five. Oh, <laughs> six and six. How very conventional. <laughs> Two and four. Oh, six and six again. One and two. Four and five. You just wrote a song, Roman. I'm so excited. <laughs> I didn't know I had it in me. Let's see how it sounds. Okay. so good (laughs) that was a false ending (laughs) (laughs) that was my one and two the the one that went down to that yeah that's so funny (laughs) (laughs) oh it turned out so well so i I rolled this a couple of times with courtney my partner yesterday and we um i mean something that i thought was great was the false ending like that's the kind of stuff i (laughs) 
that I really like and I think is like great for a laugh and makes it feel like a game. Oh, I love it. It's so much fun. Thank you for, you know, helping me write a song this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you for so writing good. a song with me, Roman. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I never knew how talented I really was. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew. <laughs> At the beginning of 2021, 99% Invisible is Katie Mingle, Kurt Kolstad, Delaney Hall, Emmett Fitzgerald, Sean Riel, Joe Rosenberg, Vivian Lay, Sophia Klatsker, Chris Berube, Abby Madon, Christopher Johnson, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We are part of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the best, most innovative shows in all of podcasting. Discover, listen, and support them all at radiotopia.fm. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram and Reddit too. We'll be returning to our normal reported stories next week. But if you like these mini stories and you haven't heard them all over the years, I think this is episode 11 at this point, you can find them all at 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo. From Pia.